Sherlock Holmes. We present Barry Foster as Sherlock Holmes and David Buck as Dr. Watson in a new dramatization of the short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Abbey Grange, dramatized by Michael Bakewell, with Nicolette Mackenzie as Lady Brackenstall and Michael McLean as Captain Croker. Message from Inspector Hopkins. The game is afoot. What game? What time is it, Holmes? Six o'clock. Get your clothes and come. Four wheelers at the door. It is freezing, Holmes. <laughs> what on earth has happened? Not a word until we're on the train to Chiselhurst. Come. Well, now that we've thawed out a little, we can consider the facts of the matter. This is the note which came in from Hopkins. Oh. Abbey Grange, Marshall Kent, 3.30 a.m. My dear Mr. Holmes, I should be very glad of your immediate assistance in what promises to be a most remarkable case. It is something quite in your line. Except for releasing the lady, I will see that everything is kept exactly as I have found it, but I beg you not to delay an instant, as it is difficult to leave Sir Eustace. Well, what does it all signify? It appears to be a case of murder. Ah, you think this Sir Eustace is dead? I should say so. Hopkins's writing shows considerable agitation, and he is not an emotional man. Yes, I gather there has been some violence, and that the body is left for our inspection. We are moving in high life, Watson. Crackling paper. E.B. monogram. Coat of arms, a picturesque address. <laughs> I think we shall have an interesting morning. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, it's good to see you, gentlemen. Thank you for getting up on such a frosty morning. <laughs> but if I had my time over again, I should have let you sleep in your bed. For since the lady has come to herself, she's given so clear an account of the affair, there's no much left for us to do. You remember the Lewisham gang? Burglars, the three Randalls. Exactly. A father and his two sons. It's their work. I've no doubt of it. Oh. They did a job at Sydenham a fortnight ago and were seen and described. Rather cool to do another so soon and so near, but there's no doubt it's them. It's a hanging matter this time. Sir Eustace is dead, then? Yes. His head was knocked in with his own poker. Sir Eustace Brackenstall, according to the driver from the station. One of the richest men in Kent, Mr Holmes. Lady Brackenstall is in the morning room, poor lady. She had a dreadful experience. She looked half dead when I arrived here. I think you'd better see her first and hear her account of the facts. Yeah. Uh, this way, Mr. Holmes. Come in. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Lady Brackenstall. Lady Brackenstall. Do you mind if Teresa remains with us, Inspector? Uh, she has been bathing the bruise over my right eye. Of course she must stay. Do you want another cushion, madam? Are you 
comfortable. Quite comfortable, thank you. Have these gentlemen seen the dining room yet, Inspector? I thought they'd better hear your ladyship's story first. I shall be glad when you can arrange matters. It's horrible to think of him just lying there. <laughs> Why, you have other injuries, madam. Those bruises on your arms. It is nothing, Mr. Holmes. It has no connection with last night's hideous business. If you and your friend will sit down, I will tell you all I can. Thank you, Lady Breckerstone. Sir Eustace and I have been married for nearly a year. There's no point in trying to conceal from you the fact that our marriage was not a happy one. All our neighbours would tell you that. The fault may have been partly mine. I was brought up in South Australia. I found the proprieties of English life suffocating. I couldn't bear the formality. I felt hemmed in. But the real reason for the failure of our marriage lay in one simple fact, which was notorious to everyone. Sir Eustace was a confirmed drunkard. I see. Do you? Can you imagine what it is like for a sensitive, high-spirited woman to be tied to a man like that day and night? To be with him for an hour was unendurable. To be bound to him in marriage for life was sacrilege. It is a crime to say that a marriage like that cannot be broken. Calm. Calm yourself, my oh. lady. Yes. Yes. But I, I have to tell you about last night. Mm -hmm. Sir Eustace retired about half past ten. Sometime after eleven, I walked round to see that everything was all right before I went upstairs. Oh. It was my custom to do this. Sir Eustace was uh, not always to be trusted. I couldn't believe that. The dining room window is hung with thick curtains. As I approached it, I felt the wind blow in my face and I realised it was open. I flung the curtain aside and found myself face to face with a broad-shouldered elderly man who was just stepping into the room. There were two others behind him. He caught me by the wrist and then by the throat. I tried to scream, but he struck me a blow with his fist over my eye and felled me to the ground. The brutes, the savages! When I came to myself, I found that they had tied me to the oak chair at the head of the dining room table. They'd used the bell rope, which they'd torn down. I had been gagged with a handkerchief round my mouth. At this moment, Sir Eustace came into the room. He must have heard something because he was carrying his favourite blackthorn cudgel. He rushed at one of the burglars, but another, it was the elderly man, flicked the poker up out of the grate and struck him a terrible blow. He fell without a groan and never moved again. I must have fainted again, for the next thing I remember was seeing the three men by the sideboard. They had collected all the silver and they had opened a bottle of wine which stood there. Each of them had a glass in his hand. They might have been a father and his two sons. You see, Mr. Holmes, the Randalls. I swear it's their work. It took me nearly an hour to bite through the handkerchief, and then my screens brought Teresa to my assistance. Mm. <laughs> that is really all I can tell you, gentlemen, and I trust it will not be necessary for me to go over so painful a story again. Any questions, Mr. Holmes? You 
questioned her long enough, you gentlemen. It was just as she says. I ran down to find him on the floor with his blood and brains all over the room. It was enough to drive a woman out of her wits, tied there and her, her very dress spotted with him. She's coming to her own room now with her old Teresa to get the rest she needs. Goodbye, gentlemen. You just put your arm around me. You'll be all right. She's been with her all her life. Nursed her as a baby and came with her to England when they first left Australia 18 months ago. And now, if you're ready, Mr. Holmes, we'll proceed to the dining room. If you wish, Inspector, but I suspect there is very little for me to do here. Oh, here he is, Mr. Holmes. Not a pretty sight. Yeah. Death must have been instantaneous. Uh, what a terrible look of hatred on his face. He very nearly came our way once or twice. He was a good-hearted man when he was sober, but a perfect fiend when he was drunk. There was a scandal about his drenching a dog with petroleum and then setting it alight. Her ladyship's dog to make matters worse. And that was only hushed up with difficulty. Then he threw a decanter at that maid, Teresa Wright, <laughs> and there was trouble about that. On the whole, between ourselves, it'll be a brighter house without her. Uh, this is the cord with which her ladyship was tied? Yes, it was threaded through the crossbars at the bottom of the chair. Very professional job. The knots are very interesting. And this is where the bell rope was snapped off. You can see it's frayed. Mm. When this was pulled down, the bell in the kitchen must have rung loudly. Now, no one could hear it. The kitchen stands right at the back of the house. Ah, and how did the burglars know that no one would hear it? Exactly, Mr Holmes, exactly. There can be no doubt that the Randalls must have had inside knowledge of the house. They may have been in league with one of the servants. What did the burglars take? Uh, not much. Only half a dozen articles of plate off the sideboard. Lady Brackenstall thinks that they were so disturbed by the death of Sir Eustace that they did not ransack the house. Mm, no doubt that's true. And yet they drank some wine, I understand. Mm, to steady their nerves. Seems reasonable enough. These three glasses on the sideboard have been untouched, I presume? Yes, and the bottle stands as they left it. Oh. A very decent year. <laughs> Lady Brackenstall actually saw the three men drinking, did she not? Yes, she was quite clear about that. Mm. And there's an end of it. What more is to be said? And yet you must admit that those three glasses are very remarkable, Hopkins. Really? I, I don't quite follow. Well, let it pass. I don't see that I can be of any use to you, and you appear to have your case very clear. <sighs> well, thank you for coming down, Mr. Holmes. Come, Watson. I fancy we may employ ourselves more profitably at home. wrong, Watson. It's all wrong. Every instinct that I possess cries out against it. And yet, the lady's story was complete, and the detail was fairly exact. What have I against it? Three wine glasses, that's all. If I had not taken things for granted, if I had examined everything with the care I would have shown had we been handling the case, would I not have found something to go on? Oh, of course I would. Stand clear, please. On away, dog. Quick as you can, Watson. Come on, out of here. What are you doing? Stand away, please. Uh, sorry about that, my dear fellow. Oh, quite all right, Holmes. Just a little unexpected. 
I'm sorry to make you a victim of what might seem a mere whim, but I simply can't leave the case in this condition. Let's sit down and wait for the next trade to Chislehurst. But you're going back to Abbey Grange. They may be a little surprised to see us, but we must go back. Allow me to put the evidence before you, and don't let us be influenced by the charming personality of Lady Brackenstall. And we'll start with the Randalls. They had made a considerable haul at Sydenham, and as a rule, burglars are only too glad to enjoy their proceeds in peace and quiet without embarking on another perilous enterprise. Again, it is unusual for burglars to hit a lady to prevent her screaming, since one would imagine it was the one sure way to make her scream. <laughs> it is unusual for them to commit murder when their numbers are sufficient to overpower one man. It is unusual for them to be content with a limited plunder when there's much more within their reach. And finally, I should say that it was very unusual for such men to leave a bottle half empty. Huh? <laughs> how do you... How do you view all these unusual, Watson? Well, the cumulative effect is certainly considerable. Yet each one of them is quite possible in itself. And on top of all this, there are the wine glasses. Uh, <clears throat> what, what about the wine glasses? Can you see them in your mind's eye? As I see them clearly. We're told that three men drank from them. Does that strike you as likely? Well, why not? <laughs> there was wine in each glass. Exactly. But there was sediment in only one glass. You must have noticed that fact. Well, what does that suggest to your mind? Well, the last glass filled would be most likely to contain sediment. Not at all. The bottle was full of it. And it is inconceivable that the first two glasses were clear and the third heavily charged with it. What, then, do you suppose? That only two glasses were used, and that the dregs of both were poured into a third glass so as to give the impression that three people had been there. In that way, all the sediment would be in the one glass, would it not? Do you mean to say that Lady Brackenstall and her maid deliberately lied to us? Not one word of their story is to be believed. Ah, here's the Chislehurst train. I trust that by the time we get back to Abbey Grange, the good inspector will have departed. What we need, Watson, is a couple of hours to ourselves to study that dining room. Now, Watson, that's taken care of the curtains, the chair, and the carpet. Now, I want to look at the other end of that bell rope. Would you give me a hand up onto the mantelpiece? Yes, of course. Now, can't reach it. Could you just steady me while I try to rest my knee on that wooden bracket? Right, yeah. Oh, hello. What's this? Curious. Hmm. Right, now let's try. No. I still can't reach it. Ha. Right, Watson, can you help me down? <laughs> We've got our case. One of the most remarkable in our collection. Dear me, how slow-witted I've been. I nearly committed the blunder of a lifetime. You've got your man? Ma'am, Watson, ma'am. Six foot three in height. But what gave you the clue? <laughs> if you were to pull down a bell rope, Watson, where would you expect it to break? Surely, at the spot where it's attached to the wire. Why should it break three inches from the top, as this one has done? Well, because it is frayed there. Exactly. This end, which we can examine, is frayed. He was cunning enough to do that with his knife, but the other end is not frayed. I saw from the mantelpiece that it was cut clean off. The man needed the rope 
He couldn't tear it down for fear of ringing the bell. He sprang up onto the mantelpiece, couldn't quite reach the top of the rope. He put his knee on that bracket. You can see the impression of his knee in the dust. Hmm? And cut the rope. I could not reach the place by at least three inches, from which I infer that he is three inches taller than me. <laughs> Extraordinary, Holmes. How, how simple you make it all seem. <laughs> now then. Look at the mark upon the seat of this oak chair. What is it? Well, it's, uh, it's blood. Undoubtedly. This alone puts the lady's story out of court. It means that she could only have been placed in that chair after the death of her husband. Now then, let us have a few words with the old nurse, Teresa Wright. Yes, sir, it's true that he threw a decanter at me. I heard him call my mistress a... a name. And I told him he wouldn't dare to speak so if her brother had been there. Heaven forgive that I should speak ill of the dead, but he was a fiend. Yet he was all honey when they first met him 18 months ago when she was plain Mary Fraser. She'd only just arrived in London. Was it her first voyage? Her only voyage, sir. Ah. He won her with his title and his money and his false London ways. What month was that? It was just after we'd arrived. It must have been June. They were married in January. Thank you. And now, do you think I could have a few words with your mistress in private? I hope, Mr. Holmes, that you have not come to cross-examine me again. My whole desire is to make things easy for you, Lady Brackenstall, since I am convinced you are a much-tried woman. Now, if you will treat me as a friend and trust me, you will find that I will justify your trust. What do you want me to do? To tell me the truth. Mr. Holmes... No, no, Lady Brackenstall, it is no use. You may have heard of any little reputation which I possess. I will stake it on the fact that your story is an absolute fabrication. Have you nothing to tell me? I have told you everything. Think once more, Lady Brackenstall. Would it not be better to be frank? I... I have told you all I know, Mr. Holmes. Well, what do you propose to do now? Return to London, Watson, and call in at the offices of the Adelaide-Southampton line. They're in Pall Mall. And I think I might send a note to Inspector Hopkins about the Abbey Grange Pond. The pond? There, Watson, in front of you. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Have very thoughtful. Look. Someone's cut a hole in the ice for that poor swan. How very considerate. I believe you're a wizard, Mr. Holmes. I really do sometimes think you have powers that are not human. How on earth did you know that the stolen silver was at the bottom of that pond? Oh, I'm very glad if I've helped you. But you haven't helped me. You've made the affair far more difficult. What sort of burglars are they who steal silver and then throw it in the nearest pond? It was certainly rather eccentric behaviour. I was merely going on the idea that if the silver had been taken by persons who did not want it, who merely took it for a blind, as it were, then they would naturally be anxious to get rid of it. But why should such an idea cross your mind? I have no doubt that my own ideas were quite wild, but you must admit that they have ended in discovering the silver. Yes, Mr Holmes, it was all your doing. But I have had a bad setback. A setback? 
The Randall gang were arrested in New York this morning. Oh, dear me, Hopkins. That is certainly rather against your theory that they committed a murder in Kent last night. It is fatal, Mr. Holmes, absolutely fatal. Yes. And now I must be on my way. Ah, you're off so soon. Yes, Mr. Holmes. There's no rest for me until I've got to the bottom of this business. Uh, you won't stop for dinner? Well, at any other time, I'd be delighted. But, uh... Well, goodbye, and let us know how you get on. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> I dare say you thought I acted rather badly to Stanley Hopkins just now. Oh, I trust your judgment. A very sensible reply, Watson. You must look at it this way. What he knows is official. What I know... ...came to England. Only one man out of the whole... ...was on English ground last night. You will call on us at about 11 o'clock, I fancy. Then you will witness the last scene of a remarkable little drama. Come in. Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Ah, come in and sit down, Captain Croker. You got my telegram? I got your telegram and came at the hour you said. I heard that you'd been down to the shipping office. There's no getting away from you. What are you going to do with me? Arrest me? Hmm. Well, speak out, man. You can't just sit there and play with me like a cat with a mouse. Give him a cigar, Watson. Ah, uh, uh, bite on that, Captain. And don't let your nerves run away with you. I should not sit here smoking with you if I thought you were a common criminal. What do you want me to do? Give me a true account of what happened at the Abbey Grange last night. I'll chance it. There's something in your face I can trust. But one thing I will say first. So far as I am concerned, I regret nothing and fear nothing. And I would do it again and be proud of the job. Tell us your story, Captain. Well... I must go back a bit. You seem to know everything, so you probably know that I met Mary Fraser. I won't call her by that foul beast Brackenstall's name. When I was first officer of the Gibraltar, and she was coming over from Australia. Mm -hmm. From the first day I met her, she was the only woman to me. It was all love on my side and all good comradeship and friendship on hers. I have no complaint to make. When we parted, she was a free woman. But I could never again be a free man. Watson, be so good as to get Captain Croker a glass of whiskey. Yes, of course. Thank you. The next time I came back from the sea, I heard of her marriage. I was glad she hadn't thrown herself away on a poor sailor. And then, one day when I was staying with my people near Sydenham, I ran into her maid, Teresa Wright. Yeah, there you are, Captain. Oh. Your health, gentlemen. She told me all about Mary and that drunken devil. I tell you, it nearly drove me mad. I managed to meet Mary herself and met her again. Then she would meet me no more. But the other day, I had noticed that my next voyage started in a week's time and I determined I would see her once more before I left. I knew from Teresa that 
Mary sat up at night reading downstairs. I went round there last night and scratched on the window. At first she would not open to me, but it was a frosty night. She led me into the dining room. I was standing with her just inside the window in all innocence as heaven is my judge when that brute who called himself her husband rushed like a madman into the room. He called her the vilest name that a man can use to a woman and welted her across the face with his stick. Oh. I sprung for the poker and it was a fair fight between us. I went through him as if he had been a rotten pumpkin. It was his life or mine. Was I wrong? Keep to your narrative, Captain. Teresa had heard Mary scream and she came down from the room above. There was a bottle of wine on the sideboard and I opened it and poured a little between Mary's lips. Then I took a drop myself. Teresa was as cool as ice. And it was her plot as much as mine. We must make it appear that burglars had done the thing. I swarmed up and cut the rope off the bell and tied Mary in her chair. I took a few plates and pots of silver and dropped them in the pond. I made off for Sydenham, feeling that for once in my life I had done a good night's work. And that's the whole truth, Mr. Holmes, if it costs me my neck. Let me shake your hand, Captain Croker. I know that every word is true. Only a sailor could have tied those knots in the rope. I only had to find out where the lady could have met a sailor. You see how easy it was for me to lay my hands upon you? I thought the police would never have seen through our dodge. Nor have they, nor will they, until I choose to tell them. Now, look here, Captain Croker. This is a very serious matter. Though I am willing to admit that you acted under the most extreme provocation to which any man could be subjected. I am not sure that in defence of your own life your action would be pronounced legitimate. However, that is for a British jury to decide. Meanwhile, I have so much sympathy for you that if you choose to disappear in the next 24 hours, I will promise that no one will hinder you. And then will it all come out? Certainly it will come out. Well, what sort of proposal is that to make to a man? I know enough of law to understand that Mary would be had as an accomplice. Do you think I would leave her alone to face the music while I slink away? No, sir. Let them do their worst. <laughs> I was only testing you, and you ring true every time. Well, it is a great responsibility I take on myself that Hopkins has had his chance. See here, Captain. We'll do this in due form of law. You are the prisoner, Watson. Yes. You are a British jury, and I am the judge. Now, gentlemen of the jury, you've heard the evidence. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, my lad. Vox populi, vox dei. You are acquitted, Captain Croker. Come back to your lady in a year. And may her future and yours justify us in the judgment which we have pronounced this night. That was Barry Foster as Sherlock Holmes and David Buck as Dr. Watson in The Abbey Grange by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
Dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell. Lady Brackenstall was played by Nicolette McKenzie and Captain Croker by Michael McLean. Teresa, Marty Head, and Inspector Hopkins by George Little. The play was directed in our Birmingham studios by Michael Bakewell.